Will Hitchcock is the William W. Corcoran Professor of History at the University of Virginia. He has written and edited numerous books on the international, diplomatic, and military history of the 20th century, in particular, the era of the World Wars and the Cold War. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Kenyon College and his PhD from Yale University. His 2008 book, The Bitter Road to Freedom, A New History of the Liberation of Europe, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and a winner of the American Historical Association's George Lewis Beer Prize. His most recent book, published this past March, is The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World in the 1950s, which appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. He lives in Charlottesville with his wife, Elizabeth Varon, who is a historian of the American Civil War. And so please give a warm welcome to Will Hitchcock. Well, thank you so much. It's lovely to see you all here today and to join me um, for an hour in the age of Eisenhower. Come back with me to the age of Eisenhower. Um, sometimes I feel like I've never left the age of Eisenhower, and, and, uh, and I'm often rather glad to be living in those times in my work, because our own times, by comparison, seem, seem so complicated and sometimes so difficult. I'm very pleased to be here to talk about this work, which took me about eight years to complete and to bring to you. Um, it has been a wonderful journey of discovery in the life and the politics, and particularly the presidency of one of the great Americans of the 20th century, Dwight Eisenhower. In my remarks today, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to do what historians do. I'm going to make an argument. I'm not just going to tell stories. That's not what historians do. We make arguments based on evidence. And I've read the evidence, and I've come to some conclusions about the significance of the Eisenhower presidency. The first thing I'm going to argue is, is just contained in the title of the book, The Age of Eisenhower? I mean, The Age of Roosevelt, maybe. The Age of Jackson. The Age of Jefferson, indeed. But Eisenhower, did he really capture it? Does he belong in that title, The Age of Eisenhower? I think he does. Between 1945 and 1961, 15 years right after World War II, no man dominated American public life. And no man was as popular as Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was the most well-liked and admired man in America in those days. And I'm going to argue that he was also the most consequential, which is the key word of my talk today. He mattered. Eisenhower had a dramatic shape on the course of 20th century American history. That's a Surprise right there, because a lot of people would disagree, or if they, they might have thought they would disagree, but now, of course, they will submit that I'm right. <laughs> he, re he really did matter. Uh, let me, before I dive into the, my explanation of why he mattered and exactly how he shaped modern America, I want to reintroduce you to, uh, to Dwight D. Eisenhower. One uh, small thing to remember, he was born in 1890, and that makes him the last president to have been born in the 19th century. His parents then were living in a small railroad town called Denison, Texas. And it was a place that they had come to in search of work. But after just two years after Eisenhower's birth, his parents returned to the town where the Eisenhower clan, the extended Eisenhower family, had long lived since the early 19th century, namely Abilene, Kansas. And it is there in Abilene 
that Eisenhower grew up and that he always considered his hometown. Around 1900, uh, Abilene was a town of 5,000 people. It was an important rail junction for uh, trains f uh, that were loading cattle to be taken from the southwest into the big cities of the north uh, uh, for, for processing. He and his five brothers, that's five brothers, lived in a very small, modest home, which you can still see in Abilene. It is the Eisenhower, part of the Eisenhower Presidential uh, Library and Memorial there. They lived in rather cramped quarters. Eisenhower shared a bed with one brother for most of his teenage years. I don't know if you can tell Eisenhower, but he's the little boy on the left. Um, he was a popular, gregarious teenager. He grew into a strong, talented athlete. He was an all-star in football and baseball. His passions were fishing and hunting, being outdoors. His family was poor, and they lived on a meager paycheck that Eisenhower's father brought home from a local dairy processing plant. This is their home in, in Abilene. His family was poor, and I think that's something that Eisenhower used later in life to think about where he had come from. Uh, in the summers, Eisenhower uh, took uh, vegetables that were grown right out in the backyard of this house, put them in his little wagon and rolled them up and down the streets of Abilene to sell those uh, fresh vegetables to other neighbors in search of a few extra nickels. Eisenhower's family were always one accident away from penury. They did have, there was no safety net of any kind. They worked dawn till dusk. They were also profoundly a religious family. Eisenhower's uh, parents um, practiced in the River Brethren Church which was uh, an offshoot of the Mennonites, and they would end up, after Eisenhower had become successful in World War II, his parents uh, became Jehovah's Witnesses. So they were profoundly, uh, profoundly religious family, and most nights in this, in this household, the young Eisenhower could be found with his brother sitting in a circle with his father reading scripture in the evening. So a deeply religious household, a hardworking household, but above all, a household that had no extra money, no room for mistakes or error. And as he put it many years later, we were poor. But one of the great things about America in those days was that we didn't know it. <laughs> That's Eisenhower to a T. Hard work, simple pleasures, family, and the regular reading of the Bible. Eisenhower was an ambitious boy, and he knew that the key to getting ahead in life would be getting a college education. But he had no money to spend on such a luxury. And so he figured, he learned from a friend, there was a thing called the Naval Academy. His friend joined the Naval Academy, and Eisenhower said, I'll try the Army. And he went off in 1911 to the US Military Academy at West Point. Eisenhower joined the famous class of 1915 that would go down in history as the class the stars fell on. Because from the class of 1915 emerged no less than 59 general officers of the United States Army. What, were, what was in the water? <laughs> well, of course, nothing was in the water. They just, it was a question of timing, because in 1915, the United States would begin the process of, of fighting, preparing to fight the First World War, and then would go on to, to, to fight the Second. So the First and the Second World Wars would draw these men into positions of command. There were two five-star generals in Eisenhower's graduating class, and we've only had five of those. So that's quite a remarkable achievement, Eisenhower himself and his classmate, Omar Bradley. In the interwar years, although Eisenhower missed combat in World War I, in the interwar years, he did have a way of getting noticed by superior officers. Especially, 
leading figures in the interwar army, especially Generals Pershing, MacArthur, and eventually the great General George Marshall, who pulled Eisenhower out of obscurity and brought him to Washington on the eve of Pearl Harbor to help him plan the two-front war that would transform America into a global superpower. Here is Ike around 1942. In 1942, Marshall sent Eisenhower to London to lead the European theater of operations. I've often asked, why did, why did Marshall entrust such duties to a man who had no combat experience? And the answer to that is that Eisenhower had already earned his reputation in the interwar period as an organizational genius, a logistical genius. Some people looked down their nose at him and said he's nothing but a desk, a desk officer. In fact, that's exactly what George Marshall needed to lead the great campaign in Europe, somebody who could organize victory along with Marshall, who was himself the great architect of victory. He didn't need a, 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 any more battle commanders. He had plenty of those. He needed a diplomat, a coalition builder, a man who could pull headstrong subordinates together and push them towards victory. And that's exactly what Eisenhower um, was extremely skilled at doing. His three years as supreme commander of allied forces in Europe put him through an enormous trial. We can only imagine the strains and the stresses of that period. And Eisenhower proved himself to be a man of enormous durability, enormous hard work, and enormous determination. He learned a number of things. And just very briefly, I think they're things that shaped the way that he would then govern as president. He learned, for one thing, the importance of cooperating with allies. The United States would not have won World War II without allies, to say the least. Um, the, the importance of listening, sharing the burdens, and taking your allies' point of view seriously. Eisenhower was very good at that and was always a champion of allied institutions as president. He learned the value of failure. You know, Ike's uh, American army did not have a particularly easy time from the beginning of the North African campaign all the way through Italy and into, into France uh, and on to, to Germany. There were plenty of setbacks and fallbacks, and Eisenhower had to learn from failure. Uh, as they were grinding their way up Italy, a lot of people back home said, you know, Eisenhower's not the man for the job. He's not getting it done. This is too slow. It's taking too long. He figured out how to overcome some of those difficulties. Of course, he learned the terrible strains of battle, how to be a, being a commander and sending young men to their, to, to possibly to their, lot, to their deaths um, in campaigns such as uh, this, as is depicted here at D-Day. Another thing he learned was how to handle the press. Eisenhower became a master of talking to the press um, and, and making them feel as if he was really including them in the story while saying absolutely nothing. <laughs> He, he, was a, uh, he was a past master. And the press would walk out of these presidential conferences and say, golly, that was great. But what on earth did he say? I, um, I have nothing in my notes. And Ike was just smiling all the way, all the way home. Um, one other thing he learned, of course, was how to handle these very headstrong subordinates. I, I won't uh, uh, give you the details of these gentlemen, but I'm sure you recognize uh, Montgomery and Allenbrook, uh, Patton and Bradley, all figures that Eisenhower had to work with on a daily basis. And imagine if you went to the office and these four guys were waiting for you. <laughs> and, and all you wanted to do was make a cup of coffee and you had to fight it out with them about everything. So Eisenhower figured out how to do that as commander in Europe. And the last thing I'll say that he learned from his war years is a bit more, a bit more of a somber note, but terribly important to his presidency. He learned to hate war. He said it again and again. And when he came home in June of 1945, when he was given a ticker tape parade in New York City, he went to the podium. And among other things, he said, there is no greater pacifist than the regular army officer. He doesn't want war. 
He never wants it. Just a reminder of the traumas that he himself brought home from that three years of combat against Nazi Germany. It was a terribly difficult time, and he spoke of it um, with, uh, with a sense of absolute horror of the things that he had seen, and he never wanted, to, if he could avoid it, to take America back to war again. And that had a shape, that shaped the way that he ran his presidency as well. Following the end of World War II, Eisenhower was asked to succeed the great General Marshall as Army Chief of Staff. Uh, this is him in 1946. I love this photograph. I don't know if you can really get a sense for it because it's a bit, a bit grainy at this large scale, but Eisenhower had charisma. One of the things we've forgotten, in part because we often see him in black and white photographs, we think, I think of Eisenhower as old and rather ill and so forth. Eisenhower was a million dollar charisma machine. And here you can just get a sense of his confidence, his sense of self. You know, he's got his jaw out, his hat is at a, at a, at a jaunty angle, and he's not saying it, but he's thinking, of, he's thinking it. You, you want a piece of me? I, I, I just defeated uh, the Nazi Germany. What have you done? <laughs> you know? And he's Army Chief of Staff. He was terribly bored by being the Army Chief of Staff. It was a difficult job, because what did he have to do? He had to dismantle the whole great military machine that he had done so much to build. It was agony for him to do it. So in 1947, he finally left the Army, and he went to take up a position of president of Columbia University. And as it turned out, that job also kind of bored him. <laughs> I'm not surprised, being the head of a university. I've been a chair of a department. That was hard enough. Being a head of a university is a lot of headaches. And you have to deal with faculty all day long. Nothing could be worse than that. I'd take Patton over faculty anytime. <laughs> so. <laughs> After just a, just a few short months, he realized it really wasn't for him. He left most of the duties of running Columbia to the provost. But it's a very important period in his life. Uh, in the 1948, 1949, 1950, Eisenhower discovered that he had a lot of things to say. He'd left, his, he'd, he'd left the army behind. He was a public, uh, private citizen and a famous public figure. And he was starting to figure out that he was a man of ideas. And he gave dozens and dozens and dozens, indeed hundreds of lectures through this period. And I read, I read them all. And what emerges is that Eisenhower, believe it or not, this neutral figure who never thought politically at all, was a strong conservative and a strong Republican conservative. And he started to articulate the issues of the day as he saw them. In these speeches, he's, his theme was always freedom versus what he called statism. Freedom versus statism. Namely, the rapid and unchecked growth of the modern state. He declared the Soviet system, no less than the Nazi system, sought to consolidate all power into the hands of the state. And the result was that it, they wanted to crush the human spirit and individual liberty. But the point is, Eisenhower said, America is drifting in the same direction. And if we are not careful, the government and the state will take over individual liberties here at home, just as surely as the Soviets are doing this in Europe. Wow. He was a real hawk. He was very, he was, and, and the target of much of his criticism was the New Deal state that Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman had built and put into place. So it's so interesting to watch the emergence of a political Eisenhower after having been uh, the, the, the military general without a political bent. The New Deal, the Fair Deal, the growth of the state bureaucracy, all of it, he said, threatened to bring about the dictatorship of the state. These are words he used. 
was a strong critic of what was going on in American politics. Well, guess what? By 1951, with the Truman administration embroiled in the Korean War and Truman's polls absolutely at the bottom, you know, rock bottom, it wasn't too long before uh, a number of po powerful Americans came to Eisenhower and said, you have got to run for president. Only you can save us from the scourge of 20 years of Democratic rule in the White House. And Eisenhower said, who, me? Well, keep talking. <laughs> and and uh, he spent two years pretending he didn't want to be president and uh, saying, I couldn't possibly. I'm just an old soldier, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, I think he did want to be president. He just didn't want to make it look like he wanted it too much. Well, he finally uh, agreed to run. He had hoped he could, he could do it without having to actually you know, run, that he could just be drafted and elected. He didn't have to, have to say anything. And this, the Republican handler said, it's just not that way anymore. You know, it's, it's not Warren Harding uh, sitting on his porch anymore. You've got to get out there. and You've got to fight, because there's a man named Robert Taft who really wants the Republican nomination, and he's going to get it unless you get out there and fight for it. Well, Ike did get the nomination in the 1952 election um, between Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson was a bitter one in which the outgoing President Truman, uh, once, once Ike started saying critical things about the New Deal and about the Fair Deal, boy, Truman got on his boxing gloves and he went into the arena even though he wasn't up for election. And he took on Ike directly and they really went at it, hammer and tongs, and they almost never spoke to one another ever again because of the results of the 1952 election. Ike said a lot of nasty things about the, uh, about the Democrats. Truman said a lot of nasty things about Ike. Uh, Eisenhower won in a landslide. Eisenhower became president in January 1953, and he governed across eight complicated and tumultuous years. But the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, Eisenhower's presidency has always been underrated. And it's a bit of a puzzle as to why that is the case. I think Eisenhower was underestimated as a politician all the way through his eight years in office and indeed for decades after he left office. And it's always interested me to figure out why that is the case. The critics in the press and the Democratic Party styled Eisenhower as a lightweight, an orthodox, pro-business, do-nothing president, a lazy leader who, despite his great smile, was often uh, callous and distant and cold. That was the word that uh, John Kennedy used about him, he's cold more interested in golf than in governing. It's the central paradox of the Eisenhower presidency that a man so successful at the ballot box and so popular among voters at the time, I mean Eisenhower, America fell in love with Eisenhower. Why could he have been given such poor marks by the political class? His two-time opponent in the election of 1952 and 1956, the Illinois governor, Adlai Stevenson, mocked Eisenhower. Oh, he was slow. He was tongue-tied. Eisenhower, uh, Stevenson was a very charming man and very humorous, but he used his humor in a very barbed way to mock Eisenhower for being not very sharp, which, by the way, couldn't be further from the truth. But he was little more than a tool of wealthy right-wingers. That's what Stevenson said. Harry Truman piled on, and as he was leaving the White House, He'd been, he'd, he, he, 1952, he, during, during the transition, Truman is said to have remarked, poor Ike, it won't be a bit like the army. He'll sit here and he'll say, do this, do that, and nothing will happen. <laughs> so they just thought that he was a dummy and that he had no experience for the job. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Dwight Eisenhower was the most experienced man probably who has ever taken uh, office, uh, uh, taken over the presidency in the 20th century. And his only rival in this century, I would argue, is George H.W. Bush in terms of things that he had accomplished already, running complicated organizations. But that's not how it was perceived at the time. Americans fell in love with Ike. They liked his goofy charm. They loved Mamie. Uh, and they just never stopped loving him all throughout his presidency. But the clever writers and the scholars of the era constantly underestimated him. In July 1962, after his presidency was, uh, was over and he was, uh, he was retired, the Harvard historian Arthur Schlesinger Sr. published the results of a poll. I get these emails all the time. People want to do presidential polls constantly. And they, they started this a long time ago. This one in 1962 asked 75 historians to rank the presidents, top to bottom. Eisenhower, in that poll, this is 1962, placed 22 out of only 31 people on the ballot, absolutely in the bottom of the class. He was nestled between Chester A. Arthur and Andrew Johnson, who by all accounts now is at the very bottom of the list. But, well, not quite. I heard that. But, but no one, I think, did more to undermine Eisenhower's image in popular memory than the man who succeeded him. During the 1960 election campaign, John F. Kennedy did not really run against Richard Nixon. He ran against Eisenhower. The Kennedy campaign used Eisenhower as a perfect foil. Kennedy was young. He was handsome. He was cool. He was sharp-witted, sexy, daring, dynamic. Eisenhower, by 1960, was 70 years old, the survivor of a serious heart attack in 1955, and he's pictured here recovering from that heart attack. Uh, he had also had a serious abdominal um, operation while in office. He was, he was put unconscious. Uh, and uh, by the way, we didn't have the 25th Amendment yet, and Nixon was nowhere nearby. So a remarkable lapse in judgment, I think, and also a mild stroke. He was an ill man. And he was an old man. He was a 19th century man. Remember what I said about when he was born. And John Kennedy used that against him. The torch has been passed to a new generation, born in this century. Right? That's what Kennedy said, directly relating it to Eisenhower. Well, by the time of his death, in March of 1969, at the age of 78, Eisenhower had been largely forgotten by the press. And I'll just, you would be amazed. I read through all the obituaries. And there was the most amazing condescension towards this extraordinary American. Just one line gives you a sense uh, from the obituary published in Time magazine. It concluded that Eisenhower was, quote, more figurehead than president and, quote, out of touch with his people. That was the closing epitaph of the Eisenhower presidency by Time magazine in 1969. Well, this caricature of Eisenhower is profoundly wrong. And scholars have been showing that it's wrong for now on going on 20 years. In the past two decades, many scholarly books and articles have been published on Eisenhower's handling of, among other things, the Korean War, uh, uh, covert operations and the CIA, nuclear weapons, policy towards China, Latin America, Europe, the Middle East, the Third World, and so on, and many other topics on the home front as well. Taking this new scholarship into account and then spending eight years reading through the extensive Eisenhower papers uh, in Abilene and all of the memoirs and material that is available to study the 1950s, I've tried to put it all into one book 
and to make the case that Eisenhower's presidency was indeed profoundly consequential for the history of the United States in the mid-century and, and after. I've made the case that Eisenhower is consequential. What do I mean? I mean that Eisenhower significantly shaped the United States in at least three important lasting ways. And I will now give you what the, I will release, I will reveal my, the secret. <laughs> the three important ways in which Ike truly shaped our country. First, he built and expanded and legitimated the warfare state that eventually won the Cold War. Second, he recast domestic politics, especially Republican politics, by creating a consensus about the appropriate role of government in the lives of American citizens. And third, he gave us a model for how the presidency itself ought to be used to demonstrate the significant impact of the Ike years on America, I will go into each of those three cases, because I think they really are very revealing about how significant Ike was in our country's history. First, as I say, Eisenhower dramatically expanded the power and scope of the 20th century warfare state. Obviously, he didn't do this by himself. He built upon a set of, of assumptions and policies uh, that Harry Truman had put into place. But between 1953 and 1961, Eisenhower legitimated the idea, and here's what I want to say, of a permanent peacetime warfare state. Permanent and peacetime. Designed to be responsive to any crisis around the world. The warfare state that Eisenhower built dwarfed anything that Truman had envisioned. Yes, Truman dramatically increased military spending when the Korean War broke out, but before that, his administration saw the dismantling and the hollowing out of US military capabilities. Not so Eisenhower. He was determined to maintain a peacetime military establishment that would never be caught unprepared, as we had been caught unprepared in Korea. And the numbers tell a story. I'll just give you one number to take away from this particular um, uh, point. In the Eisenhower years, the United States spent about 10%, 10% of its GDP on defense. Today, we spend about 3.3% of GDP on defense. Granted, a much bigger economy. But the point is that the United States, under Eisenhower, spent more on defense than any peacetime administration before or since to build out the apparatus that would wage the Cold War and ultimately win the Cold War. Why? Well, Eisenhower told us why. And he explained to the American public constantly why he did it. He believed that America in the 1950s faced, faced an existential threat from the Soviet Union and from the threat of global communism. He drew on the language of the Red Scare to denounce communists the world over as insidious and secretive and tyrannical and immoral and subversive. In his inaugural address, he said that, quote, forces of good and evil are massed and armed and opposed as rarely before in history. He, he said in his speech, his inaugural address, freedom is pitted against slavery. That's the word he used that was common in that time to describe the communist system. Lightness is pitted against the dark. Eisenhower's theme of the first term was the age of peril. We live in an age of peril because the communist threat was perceived to be that serious and that real. Now, Eisenhower did not that does not make him a, a, a reckless leader or, 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 or a man who wanted to go to war. On the contrary, in many respects, the keynote of Eisenhower's national security policy was restraint, 
avoiding war, avoiding conflict. After all, he ended the war in Korea in 1953. He avoided intervention in Indochina in 1954. He deterred the Chinese from starting a war in Taiwan in 1955 and 58. He compelled the British and the French allies to get out of their misguided war in Egypt in 1956. He avoided war over Berlin in 1958. He even improved relations with Nikita Khrushchev. So Eisenhower was a peacemaker, but he was building the military-industrial complex to strengthen his ability to impose peace on the world. That is the nature of his Cold War strategy. Peace through strength. That's the ultimate soldier bringing his, uh, his experience as a soldier into the White House as a diplomat. He was no pacifist. He led and presided over the accumulation of enormous national power. Just two examples here, um, the, the, the Atlas missile and the B-52 bomber. The United States had 20,000 warheads by the time Eisenhower left office, and they were all targeted on over 1,000 targets in China, uh, Eastern Europe, and the Soviet Union. 20,000 warheads prepared to go at a moment's notice. Eisenhower presided over all of that. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was deeply engaged, even in the targeting. He was remarkably engaged in this work. So, you know, on the one hand, we see this, this is what it's like to have a general as president, but on the other hand, he was fundamentally a man of peace, hoping that none of this would ever have to be used. That was the purpose of having it. Of course, Eisenhower presided over the expansion of America's intelligence agencies, uh, in particular, the CIA. And this is a source of great controversy in Eisenhower's record. Under Eisenhower, the CIA developed a global strategy that used American money and arms and technology to undermine any number of leaders or to aid any number of leaders that Americans felt were unpalatable or uh, could be helpful to them around the world. The US led uh, coups in Iran and Guatemala in 1953 and 54, also followed by significant military aid to South Vietnam, the government of No Dinh Diem on the upper right. Uh, the Americans channeled aid to rebels in Indonesia and waged covert operations in Cuba and the Congo throughout the Eisenhower period. Don't let it be said that Eisenhower didn't know about these things, that he was somehow out playing golf and just the, the Dulles brothers were cooking this up. Not true. Eisenhower knew exactly what was going on, and he, it was all done um, covertly, but he was deeply engaged in the policies. Why? Because he felt that to undertake covert operations against, quote unquote, American enemies was a cheap, efficient way of getting rid of difficult people that could threaten American interests. So in that sense, what I learned is that Eisenhower was cold-blooded remarkably cold-blooded and strategic. We look back on a lot of these covert operations now through a very different lens, and, a, and, we, and, and scholars have been very critical of Eisenhower's use of covert operations to destabilize governments around the world. At the time, Eisenhower looked at these operations through the lens of World War II, which was if you have an enemy, you're going to do whatever it takes to get rid of that enemy. And they would have used covert operations against the Germans in World War II. Of course, they did. And that's the reference point that he brought to that case. No doubt this is a source of controversy. We can debate it in the Q&A. But the point of the matter is to take it as a whole. Eisenhower shaped America's Cold War strategy in the 1950s, and that was the strategy that would go on to be followed by all succeeding presidents until the end of the Cold War. So when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, we could honestly say that Eisenhower built the means to triumph over Soviet communism. You may not like the, the means that he built, but he, he thought it was appropriate, and not only that, crucial to protect America's global interests. 
The second area that I wanted to touch on was Eisenhower's impact on the home front, on domestic politics. Here, I think he was far more important than we have tended to realize. He recast domestic politics in America, I think, by shaping a national consensus about the place of government in the lives of American citizens. Before Eisenhower, there was a you know, great pendulum between the far right and the, 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 the Harding and Coolidge and Hoover era to the activism of the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt. Eisenhower, despite all that rhetoric of the late 40s, it turns out Eisenhower wanted to stop the pendulum right in the middle. He, was, he wanted to make the middle a dynamic, appealing place for Americans to, to, to move toward. He thought that these pendulum swings between far left and far right was bad for the country. He managed, in many respects, during his eight years in office, to disarm and defang the right wing of his own party, the Republican Party, the so-called old guard Republicans, who had supported Robert Taft here on the left um, in, in, uh, uh, in the early years and who were anti-government isolationists. Eisenhower moved the Republican Party uh, to the center, and he wanted it to make it a moderating force in public life. And I'll just give you a few examples of how he did this. Again, despite his, his campaign rhetoric, oh no, it turns out that some people don't actually govern uh, on the promises that they make while they're running for president. Well, <laughs> Eisenhower was not nearly as conservative as a president as he was when he was a candidate in 1952. He made his peace with the New Deal. He expanded Social Security to include a, an additional 10 million American self-employed people. He raised the minimum wage. He founded the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. He even suggested, wait for it, every president does this, he even suggested plans for a national health insurance system. It went nowhere. Perhaps his significant domestic achievement was, uh, was uh, planning and building the system behind the interstate highway system. Uh, and it's a good example of Eisenhower's approach to federal, uh, federal government. 40,000 miles of roads were built in the federal uh, interstate highway system, cost billions, but most of the money came through a gas tax, a user's fee, essentially. Did, the charge on the Treasury was not significant. His attitude towards taxes also tells us something about how far the contemporary GOP is from the GOP of the 1950s. In 1954, he faced demands from the, the part of his party for, to initiate sharp tax cuts, because were, taxes were enormously high in the Korean War period. And Eisenhower said, we're not going to cut taxes until we've balanced the budget. That's how it works. <laughs> this is why we'll never have an Eisenhower again. <laughs> he went on the radio, and he said this, and I just love this. The good American is proud to carry his share of the national burden. Have you heard that message much lately, that the good American pays his and her taxes because it is part of the responsibilities of citizenship? Well, nowadays, taxes are high, and no one likes to pay them. But we don't have a culture that says it's part of our duties as citizens to do it. At least we don't often hear that from our political leaders. Ike had no problem making that case, and he believed it strongly. I don't want to pretend that Eisenhower was a, some sort of liberal in, in conservative clothing. I don't think that's true. And I'll give you examples of the ways in which he struggled on the political pendulum. The first relates to McCarthyism and uh, the Red Scare. Eisenhower accepted the basic premise of the people who generated a lot of the panic around the Red Scare, that there were, in fact, communists that had penetrated into the foundations of the US government and that should be rooted out. And this is why he put young 39-year-old Dick Nixon on the ticket in 1952. Now, Eisenhower loathed Senator Joseph McCarthy. But it was McCarthy's methods that Eisenhower hated 
and his baseless personal attacks, but Eisenhower didn't want to be caught sitting passively if there were, in fact, communist spies who penetrated into the US government. So the idea of hunting those out and rooting them out through loyalty boards and loyalty oaths, Eisenhower accepted as a necessary requirement to make sure there was not subversion in government. His executive order 10450 announced new procedures for rooting out anyone who was considered, quote, disloyal, as well as, and here's the language of the executive order, quote, habitual drug users and, quote, sexual perverts. So anybody who was de de deemed a little bit uh, out of the absolute uh, box uh, was not welcome in the federal government in the 1950s. In confronting the greatest social and moral challenge of his times, the civil rights movement, Eisenhower, like many white Americans of the era, responded with caution and wariness. I do not believe it is right to paint Eisenhower as an unsung hero of the civil rights movement. A number of books that have come out recently have attempted, I think, to push this case a little too far. However, Eisenhower did make a number of absolutely crucial decisions in this field that were bold, that were humane, and that were consequential for mid-century Americans, both black and white. He accepted a great deal of advice from his attorney general, a man named Herbert Brownell from New York, who was quite progressive on civil rights issues and really took the civil rights case uh, in hand. And together, Eisenhower and Attorney General Brownell worked quietly through the courts to weaken Jim Crow segregation. They helped uh, spur on the desegregation of our nation's capital, Washington, DC. They appointed five, wow, five moderate uh, jurists to the Supreme Court. Can you imagine the controversies of one president having five appointments? Earl Warren was the most significant of them. By the way, Warren was, was just uh, sent in on a, on a um, recess vote. <laughs> Times have changed. Earl Warren of California was appointed Chief Justice, and Warren would write the unanimous decision in Brown versus Board of Education that ordered the end of segregation in public education. Eisenhower knew Warren was a progressive on civil rights. That case was already in the works, and he knew that the court would confront the issue of segregation in public education, and Brownell was urging Eisenhower to get out in front of it and to support it, and they did. So despite what people will tell you, oh, Eisenhower hated Warren, that all came later. Eisenhower was, was with Warren on the decision on Brown. He also steered through the Congress, the 1957 Civil Rights Act, not a particularly powerful piece of legislation, but the first Civil Rights Act since Reconstruction, 80 years earlier. It was a landmark, not only because it was the first in so long, but because it created the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. And of course, Eisenhower would order federal troops in to Little Rock, Arkansas, to enforce the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown over and against the segregationist uh, 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 preferences of Governor Orville Faubus of Arkansas in 1957. So my point is that Eisenhower did not really understand the crisis of black life in America in the 1950s, but he took a number of decisions that were progressive and that kept the ball rolling forward and that allowed a later generation of politicians and leaders and activists to move into this space and to keep the progress moving forward. He did not make the issue a personal one. He did not make it into a moral issue. He did not heightened the moral stakes of the civil rights crisis of the 1950s. He shied away from it. But in, if you look at his record and you compare it to what it might have been it had another leader been in office, I think you can say it's a, a remarkably progressive but also consequential record of achievement and change in the civil rights field. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the last point that I want to make 
is about Eisenhower's impact on the presidency itself. And I can make this very briefly. Eisenhower, I think, established a very important model for, for a presidential leadership that Americans now, I think, perhaps more than ever, ought to reflect upon. This man was raised in a strict and frugal family. He was trained in a career of soldiering. He believed, fundamentally, that discipline was the key to success. Discipline had been the key to his personal success. It was his lodestar. You know, Eisenhower, this is an odd little factoid, but Eisenhower weighed 175 pounds his entire adult life. He took care of himself. He, he didn't play golf because he was bored. He played golf because he once was a great athlete, and he was terribly competitive. Wow, you didn't want to be on the other side of a bridge table from Dwight D. Eisenhower. Absolute genius bridge player, poke, killer poker player, very competitive guy. Uh, he had as a natural athlete, loved to play golf because it kept him trim, kept him physically active, um, and it burned off a lot of steam. He kept it, so my point is he was disciplined in the way he carried himself personally. He quit uh, smoking a four-pack a day habit, four packs a day, in one moment. His doctor said, Ike, you're, in 1949, Ike, your smoking habit's going to kill you. He said, OK, I'll quit. What else? <laughs> that was it. He never smoked again. I mean, no patches, no gum, whatever. <laughs> Just boom. But more to the point, he ran the presidency with that same sense of organization and discipline. And I'll just give you an example of what it looked like in the Eisenhower White House. Every single Monday, Eisenhower met with leaders from both parties of Congress. Every Wednesday, he held a press conference in which he and a microphone and the Washington press corps was all there was. No way to hide. Just sat there and talked to the press for 30 or 40 minutes. And after 1955 onward, those were taped on film and broadcast on television. Imagine meeting with the press every week. Every Thursday, he chaired the National Security Council, and every Friday, he met with his cabinet. Truman did not convene the National Security Council very often, and Kennedy just said, hell, I, I, I don't need this. I have Bobby. I don't need any of these people. Eisenhower, by contrast, thought the National Security Council was the most important body of government. He used it every week to craft policy. Um, and boy, are the minutes of that, those meetings astounding to see his mastery of the world of world affairs. There wasn't one corner of the globe Eisenhower hadn't actually physically been to by the time he was president. And he knew the people. He knew the issues with amazing depth. During his presidency, the National Security Council met 366 times. Eisenhower was present at 329 of those meetings, a 90% attendance rate. He chaired the NSC 90% of the time. John Kennedy would, would, would lampoon this as, as, as drudgery, as, as bureaucracy gone, gone wrong. Not Eisenhower. He said, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. You've got to be planning for the possibility that on the other side of the hill is a gigantic crisis. The more you're planning and thinking about possible future outcomes, the better off you'll be when the crisis arrives. Discipline carried over in his approach to the nation. He was a champion of the free market, and Eisenhower told Americans that prosperity would come only to those who worked hard for it. The government would help clear a path, but would do more, no more than that. Americans had to demonstrate their God-given abilities in a free marketplace. He told Americans that they had to have discipline to wage and to win the Cold War. He in, demanded in all of his public speeches vigilance, steadfast purpose, commitment, uh, belief, 
uh, the idea of Americanism. These were the words Eisenhower used again and again. So if you add it all up, ladies and gentlemen, we see that Eisenhower and his legacy, I think, really matter, and we can see it in a new light. He dramatically expanded the warfare state and waged the Cold War with intensity and skill and put into place a high-stakes, costly, but finally effective strategy to win the Cold War. He dragged his own isolationist party into the light of internationalism. And I think he also gave the Republican Party of the 1950s a heart transplant, advancing important social policy and making it more sympathetic to the needs of Americans. And he managed to make the institution of the presidency itself stronger, better organized, more rigorous, more reactive to the needs of the moment. Many critics would later say Eisenhower didn't really understand how to use the presidency. He didn't understand the powers of the presidency. But Eisenhower was not Franklin Roosevelt. He did not want to create an imperial presidency. He did not want to be responsible for every nook and cranny of the, of the, of the American body politic. He believed in a balance of powers. He believed in a limited presidency, something we've completely forgotten to this day. He wanted the presidency to serve in cooperation with others around in the government. He wanted it to be responsive and empathetic, wise, but limited in its reach. He carried with him into office the values of his forebears, namely self-reliance, frugality, discipline, restraint, faith, and humility. These virtues have, I think, become to be seen as somewhat corny in our time. But perhaps after so many decades of excess, even vulgarity, not to mention war and conflict, hatred and violence in our own time, the unthinkable has happened, ladies and gentlemen. Many Americans might actually yearn for a leader of the caliber of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Thank you very much for your attention. Why Gettysburg? Um, Eisenhower had first encountered Gettysburg in, during, the, uh, the, during the First World War. It was one of his first command posts was uh, to work uh, to, to train um, the emerging uh, cavalry corps using uh, French tanks that had their guns all disassembled uh, to train guys to f learn how to use tanks. So in, uh, that was in 1915, one of his first commands there. So he was familiar with the area. He was a profound uh, Civil War buff and a, a, a man who read a great deal of history. Um, and so, you know, he was, he, he, never had a, he, he never had a home after he left home, after he left Abilene in, 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 uh, in 1911. He had been around the world, but he didn't have a home. He, his home, when he was, you know, election eve, he was in the Columbia University president's house. So he didn't have a home. So in 1950, he bought a dilapidated farmhouse before he was president, but after he left the army. He never had any money either. I mean, he sold his memoirs in 1948, first money he ever had. And so he came into the money from the book, and he said, Mamie, what are we going to do? Well, let's buy a nice place, and I love Gettysburg. So we bought the farm, um, and then painstakingly had it rebuilt and renovated, and didn't move into it until 1955, when it was finished, and then it became uh, their second, after, after the White House, it became their principal home. Um, after, uh, so on weekends, they were always out there. And they could drive out there in just a couple of hours from Washington. I, I actually think that if, if Eisenhower's 
presidential memorial and library had been built in Gettysburg, his reputation and history would have been very, very different because the Eisenhower Library is fantastic, packed with wonderful materials, but it's in Abilene, Kansas. And the truth is, it's hard to get there, and it's far away from everything. And scholars, you know, it's hard to get there. But think of the millions of people who come to Gettysburg every year. They'd, they'd peel off and go look at Eisenhower's stuff. He would have had a better treatment, I think, by historians earlier than he had done. Uh, uh, oh. Where are we? Would you uh, remark on Eisenhower's relationships with uh, Thomas E. Dewey and his brother Milton, and uh, whether they may have provided a counterweight to uh, uh, John Foster Dulles. Incidentally, when I was at Yale, I uh, ordered a course with Henry Ashby Turner, and he told me about, uh, I learned what a fine history department Yale had, and that's been shown again in this society and in other places where I have been, and you're just one more example of it. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Henry Turner was a formidable figure, a German Germanist at, at Yale, and uh, uh, he, he reenacted the, the, the Prussian, Prussian discipline in everything that he did. I can assure you, he scared the daylights out, out of all of us as graduate students. Um, Dewey was crucial to making Eisenhower. Dewey, the two-time failed presidential candidate um, at, for the, on the Republican ticket, uh, saw the talent Eisenhower had, because of course he saw him in New York all the time while Ike was at Columbia. They got to know one another very well. Dewey w was toxic to the old guard right wing, Taft wing of the party, but he was enormously influential in the nor Northeastern establishment Republican wing. And even though he could not run again, he had a great deal of influence over manipulating the, uh, the Eisenhower, the, the sort of politically unsophisticated people around Ike, you know, introducing them to how to get uh, position yourself for a run for presidency, the presidency. Uh, Dewey was, of course, much more liberal than the Taft wing, more of an internationalist, and they shared that. Uh, so they, I don't think they were personally warm towards one another, but, but Dewey was really important um, to Ike's fortunes. Do we, also owe, owe Thomas, do we also owe Thomas Dewey and other, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, vote of thanks or, 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 a, or a raspberry, which is um, he's responsible for putting Richard Nixon on the ticket. Uh, I, Eisenhower had never met Richard Nixon before he was put on the ticket as vice president. Dewey engineered the whole thing. He'd seen Nixon talk. He liked him. He liked his tough, he liked his youth. He liked his red hunting credentials. He liked everything about him. Uh, he, he was just a lot like Dewey, even just even sharper elbows. And he said, that guy's going to be president one day. I'm going to put him on Ike's ticket. It's going to help on the, on the geography, because he's from California, and he's so much younger. Um, so there you are, a very important figure. Milton, he was very close to. He spent a great deal of time talking to his brother Milton almost every day. It is true, is it not, that there was a wing of the Democratic Party that sought to replace Truman with Eisenhower in 1948. And I'm wondering if that relationship uh, contributed to some of the animosity that you suggested existed between the two. <clears throat> it's not only true, but the, the wing of the Democratic Party that wanted to put Ike on the ticket to run as a Democrat was, was, was Truman himself. Truman in 1945, while they were while they met when they met in Berlin, um, at Potsdam, told Eisenhower, according to Eisenhower, Ike, I think you're terrific, and I am prepared to get you anything you want, and that includes the Democratic nomination to be president of our country. He even said, I'll, I'll run as your vice president. <laughs> now that gives you a sense, this is only four months into Truman's presidency, that, that Truman was still absolutely wowed by Eisenhower. Eisenhower was far more famous and well-known in America and around the world than Truman was in 1945. 
And so he said, Ike, you're, you know, you, wow, you could be president. And I, but I, I can bring the Democratic Party machine behind you. Eisenhower said, I, that my, his head, he said his head exploded. He just felt terribly nauseous. He said, I'll never, I, that was crazy. Plus, what Truman didn't know was that Ike and his people were Republicans. Later, he did it again. He, it was at least three times when Truman offered to uh, try to get Ike to run as a Democrat. So uh, Truman, Eisenhower never took the bait and just said, I don't want to talk politics, because he was in uniform at the time. But I do agree with you that uh, because they became such political enemies, that Truman was embarrassed that he had been somehow duped in a way, or felt maybe he'd been duped. Uh, but I think Truman really admired Eisenhower. And when he saw what Eisenhower was willing to do in 1952, to run for president. I think he changed his views of, of Eisenhower. Um, and, and, and Truman was a, a kind of a, a black and white type of guy. <laughs> you know, you're with me, you're against me. George Marshall, by, by contrast, uh, had a close relationship with uh, Eisenhower. And that came, became controversial. And Marshall never took it seriously. He just said, Eisenhower, if you're going to be a politician, you're going to say stupid things. And I'm not going to take them seriously. I will always respect you. That's fine. That's, and their correspondence shows that. So, thank you. Hi, we have a question from one of our Facebook Live audience members. Oh, and they are wondering why Eisenhower did not defend George Marshall against Joe McCarthy's charges. Yes, it's one of the great uh, black marks against, uh, against Ike that is often brought up. Um, McCarthy had been railing against George Marshall as a possible um, part of a, consp a conspiracy so immense because of the loss of China in 1949, and Marshall's fingerprints were all over our China policy. Eisenhower was running as a Republican um, candidate uh, in Wisconsin when he gave a speech that had a little paragraph in it that was designed to praise George Marshall. The paragraph was removed at the insistence of his advisors and indeed of the governor of Wisconsin, Wisconsin being McCarthy's home state. So for Eisenhower to go to Wisconsin and praise Marshall, was the same thing as Eisenhower going to Wisconsin and criticizing Joe McCarthy. Eisenhower was a little bit naive. And I think he was also um, inclined to say, look, uh, I want to be president, A. B, I want a Republican Senate. And running it down McCarthy, maybe we lose the seat. Maybe the Democrats win the seat. Maybe I don't get a Democratic Senate. I mean, he was, he was acting the way a tactical political candidate acts. He would then go on, of course, to regret deeply that he had made that blunder, because the press knew that paragraph was in the speech before he delivered the speech, because they had distributed the text of the speech ahead of time. And they said, where's the paragraph praising Marshall? You took it out. So it got blown up into an enormous controversy, terrible blunder of the campaign. But Eisenhower praised Marshall on numerous occasions uh, later. Um, and he criticized McCarthy on numerous occasions, albeit obliquely. So again, on this point, Marshall, the important point is Marshall forgave Eisenhower. He, in fact, really didn't take it all that seriously. But subsequent generations have viewed this as a sign of Eisenhower's political ruthlessness and lack of courage. I think it's a sign of his, uh, of his political naivete at this time, first time he'd ever run for anything. Uh, late in his second term, uh, he faced the Carrier Francis Powers U2 episode, yeah. as well as Sputnik. Uh, in any of your readings, uh, any comment from him that caught by surprise, or where, what are we to do with all this, and, and, and eventually leading to perhaps the space race? Well, Sputnik, um, 
And the U2 are too fascinating. I give it quite a lot of attention in the book. The Sputnik, you know, 1957, it's a, it's a surprise. But Eisenhower doesn't overreact. He doesn't feel that um, this is a, a t as big a deal as the press made it out to be. I think he underplayed it, actually. I think he handled the press reaction poorly. But the reason Eisenhower wasn't perturbed was because he knew how many um, rockets and missiles the United States was at that very moment about to put online. The Atlas Tit and Titan missiles, the Polaris missiles, the Corona spy satellite, all those were about to go live within a year. So he knew that it, it, was, it was a race. Yes, they got their lump of aluminum up into space before we did. Ours followed a few months later. But he didn't feel that this was a threat because it was, while it was a powerful rocket, it wasn't an ICBM. It couldn't be targeted to land on Washington or, 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 or you know, Denver or San Francisco. So militarily speaking, he said, it's not that big a deal. And he said that publicly, and everybody said, what? <laughs> so that probably wasn't very wise. Um, on the U-2, I'll just say, uh, gosh, it's a fascinating story. And I've, I've, I've took, I, I try to give it a lot of attention in the book. It's one of the biggest mistakes of his presidency. And he took bad, he was so close to such a big breakthrough at the Paris summit of 1960. He and Khrushchev were going to meet. They had an agenda full of interesting things they really were wanted to agree on. They'd met the year before in Camp David when Khrushchev came to the United States, which is a hilarious episode of Khrushchev's visit to the US. I give it all in the book. I think the Cold War could have changed its character in 1960 if that meeting had happened. But instead, it was canceled because the Soviets shot down a U-2 spy plane over its own territory, as they had every right to do. Um, and Khrushchev felt that this was a violation of their sovereignty and an incredible outrage, and he, the whole thing went, went to hell. And the reason that Eisenhower kept, flew that spy plane over, over uh, Russia at this crucial moment was because Alan Dulles kept saying, we need more intel on the other guys. We need more intel. Let me use the U-2. Let me use the U-2. And Eisenhower in 1957 said no. In 1958, he said no. In 1959, he said no. He understood the provocation. He let his guard down in 1960. And he said, yeah, it would be nice to know what they're up to. Maybe right before the summit, having be able to read their cards. He allowed three U-2 flights to go over, and the last one was shot down. Destroyed the summit, and I think was a terrible error in his presidency. And I don't think he ever admitted how significant a mistake it was. So we have time for one more question. Uh, yeah, a couple of points uh, and questions. You used the word consequential over and over. Do you think he could have had an even more consequential presidency if he hadn't had all of those uh, health issues? And secondly, the story maybe it's just a, an old tale, is that the, the interstate system, which he you know, helped uh, foster, was uh, prompted by his uh, impression, being impressed with the roads in Germany. Yes, yes, and, and also being, being a duly uh, dep depressed by the roads in the United States. Uh, <laughs> he famously went on the trans transcontinental convoy in 1919, where he had to take a bunch of surplus World War I material from uh, Washington to the West Coast, and it took him three months because there were no roads across two-thirds of the country. And he said, well, that, that we should fix that. But yes, he was impressed with the roads in Germany and in Europe. Um, and indeed, he wasn't the man who invented the idea of an inter interstate highway system. The interstate highway system that he actually approved had been drawn up in the 40s. But it had never gone anywhere because it couldn't figure out how to pay for it. So his innovation was to say, well, let's do the highway trust fund, where basically you take a gas tax, the gas tax goes in 
uh, the Highway Trust Fund, and can only be spent on more highways. So the more cars you drive, the more gasoline you drink, uh, the more taxes you raise to build more highways. So it's a wonderfully self-perpetuating machine. Um, so yes, uh, he, he, he was, uh, I think, I, I, as far as consequential and his health, you know, he, he suffered uh, some really very serious health crises uh, and the heart attack. He was out of he was out of out of he was out of the office for six months and he was really out of action for about ten to eleven months. It's a huge time. He was in Denver recovering. He was in Gettysburg recovering. Briefly in Florida recovering. He met with the NSC um, a couple of times in the winter of 1956, but he had the heart attack in in, in August and. Um, the whole thing was remarkable how, compared to today, how lackadaisical they were. They had no succession plan. Nixon was kept at arm's length. Nobody believed Nixon could do anything. He wasn't around. He, John Foster Dulles and Sherman Adams ran the presidency while Eisenhower was ill. Um, and believe me, Nixon remembered that. He, 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 was, he resented that. But uh, could he have done more? I don't know. I think it's a remarkable record. Uh, as it is with uh, even if it was only uh, seven and a half years of active presidency. <laughs> well, thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. Appreciate it.